Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's a new year, so what news stories from 2021 will spill over into 2022? We talk with Christine Stewart of City News Junkie, the state's longest-running online news service, reporting on what happens in the capital to get some insights. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's the beginning of a new year, 2022, and as most news organisations do at this time, we look back at some of the bigger stories that dominated the headlines in 2021. Here in Connecticut, of course, COVID, like everywhere, was never out of the news. But we also saw other major stories last year that had significant impact in the state. CT News Junkie is one of several online news outlets that reports about our state capital and what our legislators are up to. They've become one of the go-to sources for news of this nature because of their fair and balanced reporting and the years they have been doing their work and cultivating their news sources and understanding the day-to-day goings-on of our state government. I caught up with Christine Stewart, one of the founders of City News Junkie recently, for a chat and recap of the stories of 2021 that we will still be hearing about this coming year. Christine, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So just in case there's anybody out there who hasn't heard about CT News Junkie, tell us what it is. We are the longest running independent online news organization covering the state of Connecticut, the state capital and state politics. And holding your lawmakers accountable is what we like to do every day. And so I am extremely blessed and I can't believe that it has been 16 years that I have been able to do this. And, you know, every day is something new and exciting. And I love bringing people news and, you know, holding lawmakers accountable. So obviously, we're very lucky to have CT News Junk. And certainly 16 years is a mammoth amount of time. And obviously, you've got great supporters out there who just just love, obviously, the work that you guys do there. So, of course, you know, things changed. We've now been dealing with COVID globally for two years now. How did that affect your ability as a journalist? Because obviously a lot of interactions with legislators. So talk us through that. Right. So at the very beginning, what was really interesting was that obviously the governor was having his briefings every day at four o'clock on COVID. And we were actually coming to those physically in person. And so I think that this was because everything was shut down at that point. We were one of the few entry points to be able to provide information about what was going on. So we immediately pivoted and figured out how to live stream those newscasts on Facebook. And so that was that was hugely important to us 
reaching broader audience that might not have known about us because they don't necessarily follow politics on a regular basis. And then at that point, we had the Department of Labor, you know, so we had this this workforce issue, you know, all of these people uh, were unemployed because the economy had, you know, essentially shut down and all these people were unemployed, but they were unable to get their unemployment benefits. So in this weird roundabout way, we ended up becoming this intermediary between people who were trying to get their unemployment benefits and the Department of Labor. So we were acting as that service uh, sometimes. And, you know, a, a lot of the things that we did during those early days of COVID didn't necessarily become a news story. We kind of came this this help point, this touch point for people to be able to access their benefits, access their government. And so that was really important. And then we went into, you know, the the legislative session where the public wasn't allowed to be in the building. And last year, every, every public hearing was held via Zoom and televised. It was all remote and, you know, lawmakers were remote. So being able to access lawmakers, luckily we had most of their cell phones um, on the ready. And that was hugely important that we had, we had previously established those relationships that, so that we were able to get a hold of them, but it became, you know, it was really intense, you know, would, would this lawmaker, would you be able to reach them? Would they, would they pick up the phone? So basically, you know, state government could have could have hidden what they were doing, even though they say that they brought more transparency, I think was less transparency and and trying to get them to respond to these questions, because I think that they also didn't know what was going on or what necessarily the public wanted from them because they were unable to access those personal conversations. So it's been this really interesting evolution. Yeah, I agree with you as obviously as a fellow journalist. I mean, the ability to use technology clearly just to stay in contact with people or to do interviews, as you know, I'm doing with you now, we're using a piece of technology and both of us are hundreds of miles apart from one another. And, and of course, that's a great thing, but it also hinders the ability to ask those extra questions. And like you said, with public hearings or, or you know, with, with press conferences, I often found myself, journalists were very restricted as to how they were able to ask the questions that had to be done through a chat rather than the journalists actually being able to necessarily voice the question so that a real dialogue could happen. So uh, it, yeah, I hear what you say. It was, um, it was an, it's I, been an interesting time. I, I think that people also don't understand, like when we were when we were going to the COVID briefings at four o'clock every day, and we were still in person at that point because they hadn't figured out how to switch over to completely virtual. Like our questions within the Connecticut press corps play off each other, so you couldn't have that. You had to wait for Max Reese to call your name to ask your question, but somebody else might have asked a and you had a really good follow-up to that question, you couldn't immediately ask that. And by that point, they were already past it. And so I felt like it wasn't as comprehensive as it could have been if we were all still in person. Obviously, some big stories, uh, plenty of big stories happened, nevertheless, in 2021. We're going to talk about a few of them, I suppose, Two of the biggest ones, really, marijuana, retail sale of marijuana, which, of course, will be happening at the end of 2022. But, of course, that all passed through and, and online gambling. Talk to us a little bit about the, the marijuana, because I think people weren't quite sure if that was going to get through or not. 
Yeah, I mean, it had been around for a few years. And I think that the push from all of the neighboring states doing it and the potential for the loss of revenue, you know, it, it, it was tenuous, though. I mean, we were not quite sure that it was going to pass. And then at one point didn't pass. It, it failed. One version of it failed and they had to come back and do another version. So this actually passed during a special session. And so, you know, they're still fighting over the regulations for this. You know, they pushed it out again. The Social Equity Council that is going to create this lottery for the communities that were impacted by the war on drugs to be able to get into this business was pushed off. Applications for that was pushed off again until the end of January. So I don't think that we're going to see retail sales in Connecticut anytime soon, but you know, it is legal. So if you want to go to Massachusetts and you want to purchase it and bring it back, Connecticut won't be getting that tax revenue, but you also won't be getting arrested. been an interesting one as well because obviously we're hearing a lot of local municipalities and towns and cities around the state as well saying that uh, they may not be open to having sort of like marijuana retail dispensaries um, even if they have medical marijuana and then of course there's that pivot as well from the medical marijuana sector no doubt looking to get in on the new retail sales aspect but like you said the social equity has become a very very big hot button issue and uh, it's going to be, as you say, I think something that's going to be very, very much on the, you know, the headlines for, for 2022 as, uh, as we sort of like lead into that. And I think that people should look at Enfield and see that, you know, elections matter and that it went from one party to another party. And the previous town council had said, we don't want any cannabis sales in our town. And then there was an election (laughs) and the new council said, we do want retail sales in our town. So it's, you know, it it could flip all, all over the place and it depends on who's in power and people need to be paying attention to who they're electing if they care about this issue. Absolutely. And of course, there's the the licenses themselves, which, um, you know, there's a variety of licenses, but some of that's pretty expensive as well. And I think that's part of the issue as well for maybe the Social Equity Council as to whether or not, because these things don't come cheap, is can actually somebody in a disadvantaged part of the state manage to muster the funds? Because even, you know, established organisations that deal with marijuana sometimes have financial issues. And of course, there's the whole banking structure as well which is still grappling to try and deal with, you know, how do they finance that? So it's still quite a mess at the moment. It really is. I mean, there's no, uh, you know, you want to give these social equity applicants a leg up and you want them to be able to get into the business. But how do you get into the business when, you know, your annual income is only $100,000 a year? And if you want to grow a crop of cannabis, you know, that that's an investment of the infrastructure itself. I mean, people might think just because, you know, somebody calls it weed or pot that it's easy to grow. It is not easy to grow. It takes a lot of infrastructure and it's millions of dollars in order to get one of these businesses started. Well, we'll be carrying on watching that one with you and obviously the rest of the reporting, as we say, as we go into 2022. Now, another big story, of course, was online gambling finally came to Connecticut, the two casinos and also the lottery finally able to provide iGaming and online gambling. Talk to us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So this was, you know, good for the state's bottom line. I think within the first month, they had brought in $1.7 million in tax revenue. The casinos and the Connecticut lottery have done very well, both with sports and online casino gaming. Online casino gaming actually brought in more revenue than the than the sports betting did, even though the sports betting seemed to get more more attention from the news media, but it's been good for the state. At the same time, we're seeing this problem crop up, especially with men between the ages of 18 and 25 becoming addicted. And there is there is some problem gambling. And I'm not quite sure the bill did allocate some money to address problem gambling, but I'm not quite sure it's going to be enough. And uh, it's going to be hard to uncover some of these issues. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, we, of course, we do have the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, which is a great organisation, which I know that both of the casinos and the lottery very much work with and, uh, and funding comes from the casinos and goes to, uh, to the council. But like you said, it, it will be interesting to see what happens with addictive gambling, because I wonder with, you know, COVID still very much around and clearly as we enter 2022, you know, with the Omicron variant and we don't know what else is down the road. I think people are turning, you know, they, they want some leisure pursuits. And I just wonder if COVID is also helping to fuel this interest, uh, because obviously, you know, you can be at your home or, or somewhere and and do this. So this is going to be a very interesting one. But of course, I mean, it's also apart from, you know, that negative aspect, of course, there is a big positive aspect to it, because like you said, it does bring in a lot of money for the state. And and as I understand the rules as well, anybody coming into Connecticut, you know, visitors can obviously do this as well. So I mean, it could generate, obviously, the governor is hoping that it will generate millions of dollars for the state. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is dangerous, though, that everybody has a casino in their pocket now, (laughs) because you can pull it right up on your phone. But the state actually also has an exclusion process. So if you think that you are going to become a problem gambler or that this is a problem for you, you can actually block yourself from being advertised to or, you know, being able to download any of these apps on your phone or being able to like actually place a bet for one year, five years or a lifetime. And so you can do that on the Department of Consumer Protection website. I also heard as well, I think definitely when I was at one of the press conferences, I think it was for DraftKings, they mentioned that their software also has sort of algorithms in there that if you start sort of gambling in a strange manner um, that apparently their their software should be able to detect some of that and they claim that they you know will be able to effectively sort of block you as well if they feel that something is uh, is maybe going um, you know amiss there I mean clearly again we have to go on what they say but um, you know supposedly there are safeguards in place but um, again it's going to be another story that we continue to watch and, and like you said you know the, the money that's been generated already seems to uh, be substantial so people have clearly jumped on board the online gambling and, and iGaming situation here in Connecticut. Now another thing of course we want to talk about is the the retirement or, or the stepping down of the controller Kevin Lembo that's like came almost like a little bit of a bolt out of the blue. But I mean, where you're a little bit more connected up there in the the Hartford area in the legislature, I mean, was it a surprise when that announcement came out that he's stepping down? It was a surprise because he has, you know, I think that he hid his health issues for for a, a long time. And I don't know how long that this has been going on. It's just, it's so sad because 
Kevin Lembo has the biggest heart and, and the fact that he would have some sort of heart problem that would force him to um, stop working. It was hard to, it was hard to comprehend, you know, he's a young guy and him and his partner, Charles, you know, they, they've raised three boys together. They're also foster parents, Kevin Lembo, his legacy of creating this open government, this transparency, this open checkbook on the state's website has been phenomenal. He's the former state healthcare advocate. That's the capacity I originally met him in and uh, has a real understanding and wasn't necessarily, he was a Democrat, but he wasn't necessarily a partisan. He was very much when it came to the state's pocketbook, very, very straightforward and fiscally responsible and valued transparency above all else. Yeah, totally. I mean, I met Kevin on a few occasions and I have to say just a true gentleman and such a professional. And uh, clearly, you know, we wish him the very best and hope that um, health gets better if if at all possible, obviously, as he steps down from that position. But um, uh, he leaves the office in in good hands there. Now, of course, uh, 2022, the governor is up for re-election and he kept us all on tender hooks for quite a while and then finally gave the statement that he had filed the paperwork and intends to run for governor next year. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so that's interesting. We all knew he was going to run. It was just a matter of time before he announced. And he didn't necessarily have to announce as early as he did, but I guess he decided to announce in, in I think it was late October, early November. So he is running for re-election. He's kind of been protected these past few years by COVID and not necessarily, he was unable in his first year of of 2019 to be able to find his footing with the legislature and be able to figure out how to work with them. Remember, he was unable to get his tolls proposal passed. So it doesn't have a really good track record with his relationship with the legislature. And I don't know that COVID has improved that because he's had this executive power, which doesn't expire until February of 15th. And so he's kind of been left to run the state unchecked at this point. So it should be interesting to see. Obviously, Republicans are going to use that against them. But I think, you know, the other issues for the election are going to be, you know, the state's finances, the economy and youth crime is is going to be a really big one. And of course, you know, there's a lot of money flooding into the state, like so many other states with the infrastructure bill as well. And also 2022 is a short legislative session. So, I mean, that could also, could that work for him or against him, do you think? Well, it's always a short legislative session in an election year. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it all depends on whether his executive authority expires in February or whether he he works with the legislature to uh, extend it again. I don't think either of them, I don't think it favors either of them and their re-election campaigns at this point. So they will probably allow it to expire. You know, the legislature wants to be seen as, as doing something, but they're not going to do much of anything because they don't do much of anything in an election year. You don't want to rock the boat. You just want to get reelected, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and do you ultimately think, I mean, with the whole COVID situation, and it's a difficult question, I suppose, to answer, but do you think it could in a way sort of like be helpful to him because I mean he hasn't done a bad job you know when we look around the rest of the other states here in the United States I mean Connecticut has done reasonably well obviously there's still people who 
you know, we've got the anti-vaxxers and there have been issues. I mean, it hasn't been plain sailing, but do you think on the whole that how he has been received and perceived in dealing with COVID could possibly help him? Yeah, I think that that will definitely help him. But I I think there are some, you know, the negatives to to drag him down. They they haven't done anything on youth crime. So I think that you see, obviously, people in suburban communities. I know people don't probably think about it this way, but the suburban communities really, the urban communities and suburban communities really control the power within the legislature. So you know, that is going to be a, a huge Achilles heel if they decide not to do anything with that this year. But they could. They could do something with it. But also an Achilles heel is is his wife's private equity firm and the investments that that firm has made and then the contracts that some of those companies have had with the state. Even though there's no violation of, of the ethics code and they, they went to ethics before, you know, in, in 2018 and got everything straightened out, there's a perception that he is doing business for himself and not for the state of Connecticut. Well, we will wait and see how that all transpires as we step into 2022 and another full news year for everybody. But uh, Christine Stewart of CT News Junkie, it's always a pleasure reading and seeing what you guys get up to. And as you say, keeping us up to date. And uh, we're so grateful that you're around and you've been around for so long and for many years to come. Have yourself a great new news year. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. And if you want to read more about CT News Junkie or sign up to their regular daily newsletter or just read their articles, then visit their website at ctnewsjunkie.com. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. More than a year after the vaccine was rolled out, new cases of COVID-19 in the US have soared to the highest level on record at over 265,000 cases per day on average, a surge driven largely by the highly contagious Omicron variant. The previous mark was 250,000 cases per day set in mid-January last year, according to data kept by John Hopkins University. The fast-spreading mutant version of the virus has cast a pall over Christmas and New Year's, forcing communities to scale back or call off their festivities just weeks after it seemed as if Americans were about to enjoy an almost normal holiday season. Thousands of flights were cancelled amid staffing shortages blamed on the virus. The number of Americans now in the hospital with COVID-19 is running at around 60,000 or about half the figure seen in January, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
While hospitalizations sometimes lag behind case numbers, the figures may reflect not only the protection conferred by the vaccine, but also the possibility that Omicron is not making people as severely ill as previous versions. COVID-19 deaths in the US have climbed over the past two weeks from an average of 1,200 per day to around 1,500. And here in Connecticut, COVID numbers have soared recently too, with the state reporting daily new infections and rates up into the double percentage points and hospitals across the state restricting visitor access to try and protect healthcare workers and those already in hospital. With more conversations happening this year in Connecticut and across the nation about police officers in schools, a new report shows their presence in educational settings contributed to more referrals to law enforcement, particularly for students of colour. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has more. The report from Connecticut Voices for Children analyzed data from the 2017-2018 school year and found the risk of arrest was five times higher for black and Latino students in schools with police officers. Report author Samila Idalahi says for students of color, the officers can play a role in the school-to-prison pipeline. If our school campuses are places where we want to educate, to build emotionally mature young people, people who are able to participate in the workforce, who can excel at what they choose to do then, the presence of SROs kind of like defeats that purpose. Statewide in Connecticut, 22.5% of schools had an officer at least part-time during the 2017-2018 school year. The report also found no significant effect on student academic achievement in schools with SROs. I'm Emily Scott. In the Connecticut Examiner this week in June, the Connecticut Department of Education released a new framework for health education, whole school, whole community, whole child. In keeping with the more popular buzzwords among educators over the past few years, social emotional learning. The most critical part of this is that there is much more emphasis on education of the whole child, said John Frazzanelli. Division Director at the Department of Education's Bureau of Health, Nutrition, Family Services and Adult Education. According to Frazzanelli, the new framework places a greater emphasis on teaching, self-awareness, decision-making, respectful behaviour and skill-based learning. The new framework will also help ensure that local districts are better aligned with state standards, according to school officials interviewed by the CT Examiner. The last time the framework was updated was back in 2006. In the day this week, Governor Lamont announced that the state will be increasing Connecticut's 2020 earned income tax credit from 23% to 41.5% of the federal credit. The move is meant to help low to moderate income working people and families disproportionately burdened by the coronavirus pandemic economically, according to a news release from the governor's office. It is being paid for with $75 million from the state's $1.38 billion in federal coronavirus aid. Almost 200,000 households are in line for the enhanced credit, which will go to households that filed for the earned income tax credit in 2020 and make up to $56,844,000 a year. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, with $3.4 million in federal funding provided through the American Rescue Plan, Norwich City Council has given the green light for a series of substantial upgrades to the city's antiquated emergency dispatch system. Some improvements came in 2018 when Norwich voters approved a ballot question to upgrade radio systems used by the police department. Completed earlier this year, the work almost entirely eliminated so-called dead areas in the city where officers responding to a call could not communicate clearly with dispatchers. Now with the benefit of the federal funding, city council members approve upgrades to replace antiquated equipment and improve communications for the city's six fire departments. 
In the Middletown Press this week, the Haddam community has rallied behind a crowdsourcing drive set up by the daughter of a volunteer EMT who recently suffered a cervical fracture when his car hit an icy patch on the way to work. The GoFundMe account for Rudy Duranik, a member of the local ambulance association, has a $15,000 goal. His family hopes to raise enough funds to buy him a new vehicle. Rudy, who has been a volunteer for 40 years, is a retired wire company worker. His daughter said her father didn't carry full insurance on the truck because of its age. His truck hit an icy patch on Route 81 in Higginham two weeks ago, which caused it to flip over. His daughter said this time he was on the receiving end of volunteer life-saving efforts. So far, the fundraiser has collected over $3,000. And in the Chronicle this week, the Christmas holiday weekend was relatively quiet for some local emergency responders who did have to attend to a few accidents on area roads. According to Willimantic Fire Department Chief Mark Scrivener, Willimantic firefighters responded to 45 incidents between the Christmas Thursday and Sunday, including an accident in Lebanon on Christmas Eve. He said the number of incidents firefighters respond to during the holiday weekend was lower than a typical weekend. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year to you.